You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Well, good afternoon, brothers, sisters, young people. It's, uh, It's great to be with you once again in Nottingham. And um, I'm really excited about this study, the study of Joseph, and perhaps we're going to look at it from a slightly different perspective and angle this afternoon. Life can be tough, can't it? Life life can be very, very difficult, and we've all experienced that over the last couple of years. And, and, And sometimes the difficulties just don't make any sense. And and we could be in that situation today where we're finding life hard and we can't understand why the Lord is placing all these difficulties in our lives. And it's it's only, isn't it, with a with a, a sense of perspective and hindsight, as we look back upon our lives and we see the story of our life, that we understand really why these things have happened to us. And I'm sure to a certain extent you've experienced those types of moments in your own personal lives. Joseph and his brothers had no idea, did they? They had no idea what God had in store for them. And as we look at the life of Joseph, we we, we know that Joseph's life, in all the ups and downs, was about to, to, to bring about salvation to God's people, to Jacob's house and his brothers. But what I'm going to show you this afternoon, I think something else was going on in this account. And may I say something perhaps a little more important than the salvation of God's house. And how could there be anything more important than the salvation of God's house? I believe in the life of Joseph and in the life of Jacob, what's being revealed to us in a very unique way is the means of salvation. And this is the first time that we read of true salvation, true forgiveness and true redemption. And when you see this, brothers and sisters, young people, the Bible just comes alive. So so with those thoughts then, I want you to imagine, we're going to start off in this moment. There was Joseph, and he's the prince of Egypt, and we know this, even our young ones know this. It's It's such a dramatic scene, isn't it? And there is Joseph, and he's there with his brothers, and he's been parted for nearly 20 years. And he's in a position, isn't he, of control. He can humble his brothers. He could humble his brothers. But amazingly, in this moment, he shows them forgiveness. Forgiveness. I want you just to think about that, brothers and sisters. We all love the story of Joseph. And I'm going to put it to you this afternoon. If you love the story of Joseph, you've got to embrace another subject. You've got to embrace something else other than the story of Joseph because the story of Joseph is inextricably linked with something else that is absolutely fundamental and it's the subject, it's the doctrine of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Think about that. So can we open up our Bibles and not begin in Genesis? I want you to have a look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And I really want to impress this upon you and impress it upon me 
that the heart of the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ is forgiveness. And we, 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 we sometimes just overlook this subject. It is such an essential thing, forgiveness. Let, let's look at this then. Luke chapter 24 then, verse 46. And Jesus here, he's raised from the dead. He's about to be ascended into heaven. So it's a, an incredibly mo moving and, and important moment that he has with his disciples. And look what he says here. Luke 24, verse 46, And said unto his disciples, moments before he rose up into heaven, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. I just want you to notice those words, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. So, so the Lord Jesus Christ thought it so important to impart these words before he ascended into heaven, and he's been there for 2,000 years. That's incredible. How often do we think about repentance? We, we might think about remission of sins when someone is about to commit themselves in the water of baptism. But how often do we really think about repentance? And what is repentance? Repentance literally means to turn all the way around, 180 degrees, and so the question I ask you and the question I ask myself, have you truly repented? Remember the Lord Jesus Christ of Peter, when you have repented, feed my sheep. And he was a disciple of the Lord at that time. This is a really important subject. Acts chapter 2. So on the day of Pentecost, here they are, they're, they're preaching on this important day, anointed by the Spirit. And there, there is Peter, and he, he's speaking to the crowds. And, and what does he say here in verse 38? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, verse 38, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then, just a, a few days later, if you look in verse 19 of chapter 3, you see there, Repent, says Peter, ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So I want us to really think about this subject this afternoon, forgiveness. But what does forgiveness mean to you? Well, I'm sure we can all think about the words of Jesus who said that the extent of our personal forgiveness is that we are to forgive an individual if someone offends us 70 times 7. That's the extent in which we are to, to forgive others. But what do we do if we're upset? If we've been hurt personally? And, and, and those that hurt us the most are those in our family, our natural family, and in our ecclesial families. And I'm sure we've all experienced this from time to time when an untoward word has been said or, or uh, a comment has been made about us. And it cuts to the quick, doesn't it? Particularly if it's in the ecclesial family. How good are we? How active are we in forgiving those? Do you do that 70 times 7? Do I? So, so just reflect upon that for a moment. Do we go through life, which my mum used to say to me when I did something wrong, Stephen, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. That actually, mum, is the wrong attitude. I don't think she's on Zoom today. But, you know, it is the wrong attitude. We are to forget. So this idea of forgiveness, I want to just deliberate a moment here because you'll see that this is absolutely core in understanding the life of Joseph with his brothers. So if you look on the screen here, you've got the definition of forgive. Now, I've already told you what repentance means. Repentance is just turning all the way around. It literally means just to turn all the way around, 180 degrees. It's a U-turn. 
You've all done a U-turn in a car. That's exactly what repentance is. But forgiveness is slightly different. So just look at the definition. If we look at the Gospels, it tells us to forgive is this. To let go. To leave. To send away. To release. Cancel and pardon. I want you to think about those words and how they relate to forgiveness. To let it go. To leave it with the Lord. Now what's really fascinating when you look at this word, there are two aspects of this word. I don't want to get overly technical at the beginning of our fraternal, but it's really important to understand this to unlock really the life of Joseph. That the first definition, the first aspect of forgiveness is that if I am injured, I forgive someone when I personally, privately let go. And I'm sure we've all experienced that. Where you just let it go. You, you don't let it to simmer and fester away. You, you let it go. That's a good thing. That, that's the first aspect of forgiveness. But true forgiveness is if you find yourself in a position where you publicly forgive. And in order for you to publicly to forgive, the offender to the injured party has to be there and they publicly repent. Can you see that? That's the definition of forgiveness. So the first aspect of forgiveness is to, it's a let go. You no longer worry about it. You, you're, not, you're, you're, you're not thinking evil thoughts about that individual. You, you're, not, you're not impaired in your judgment about that person. You, you just let it go. And the Word of God encourages us all to do that. The second one is true reconciliation. And true reconciliation takes place where the two parties come together and the offender publicly repents and the injured party publicly forgives. That's true forgiveness, that's true repentance, and that is reconciliation. Can you see that? Now you know, because you know the story of Joseph, that how that framework just beautifully works, but we're going to look at it a little more closely in the moment. But that is the definition of forgiveness. Now isn't that amazing? That that's picked up in the Gospel, and, and the application of that is saying so beautifully in the life of Joseph. In fact, he's the first character. This is where we're going to find the idea of forgiveness first. It's in the life of Joseph. So with that, then, let's start our little story together. And I want to show you this framework of forgiveness and repentance in the story, in the narrative of Joseph. And um, when I spotted this, it's really exciting. It's really exciting. There's some very important lessons for us, and I thought it would be a nice thing to do this for the fraternal. So we're going to just progressively look at this now. We've seen the definition of forgiveness we're just now going to decompose now the latter part of Joseph's experience with his brothers. And we, we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 42. And we're going to call this on the screen here, we're going to call this stage one. Okay, stage one. And I want you just to picture in your minds when this is taking place. I think some of you are struggling with the sunshine. Right? I, I, I can't, I have no control over that. But the, the, the first moment is that when the brothers come down to Egypt, they're speaking to this prince. He's number two in all of Egypt. They have no idea that this is Joseph, their brother. 
but Joseph identifies them immediately. So just look at this. So remember that definition of forgiveness. Let, let's, let's see what goes on here. Genesis 42 then, verse 6. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he was, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. So they've been separated for, for 20 years by this time. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them, and said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So I just want to just reflect on that moment. So I've called this stage one. There's an obvious question here. Is Joseph manipulating the scene, the situation, in order for his vision to be fulfilled? And I've got these words on the screen, and you know his childhood dream. Shall we just read these words? It's Genesis 37. For behold says Joseph to his brothers, we were binding shields in the sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheep arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And he dreamed yet another dream, it says, and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And we know from the story, because I know you know the story well, that this was the catalyst, wasn't it? It was the catalyst for the disaster, a whole sequence of events. It was the coat that his father gave him, and it was these dreams that triggered the jealousy in his brothers that resulted in him being in the pit and being sold to the Ishmaelites. So the question is, there's Joseph, there's his brothers. Is Joseph manipulating everything so that... His brothers can bow down to him. Well, I don't think so at all, because look at verse 6. Before Joseph even intervenes, something happens in Genesis 42, verse 6. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and it was sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Can you see that? So, so Joseph hasn't done anything. They, they've already bowed down. Partially, the, 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 the vision has been fulfilled in a, in a certain way. So we can see here that Joseph isn't manipulating so that he's dream, so he can have his comeuppance, so that he can tell his brothers, my dream was right all the time. They bow down without even knowing it's Joseph, and Joseph doesn't even have to intervene. So he's not manipulating things. Was he seeking revenge? What was Joseph here setting up a, a situation whereby he could really make life incredibly uncomfortable for them and he could wreak revenge? Well, have a look at this on the screen here. I just want to go through very quickly, and you'll see where I'm coming from in a moment, the three meetings that Joseph has with his brothers. And we're just going to pick out a few little things. So if you're in chapter 42, I just want to look at verse 24. And this is the first meeting here. And it says there in that meeting that Joseph, he turned himself about from them and he wept. So in that first meeting in Egypt... 
whilst all the conversation was going on, he, he, he stole himself and took himself to one side and he wept over his brothers. Now, if you go to the next chapter, to verse 30, this is when he accuses them. Well, this is, the, yeah, this is when he accuses them of spies. And, and look at this, verse 30, and Joseph made haste for his bowels, did yearn upon his brothers and sought where to weep, notice. And then if you go to chapter 45, and you'll know this because this is the, the dramatic unveiling, isn't it, of Joseph here. Verse 2 of chapter 45, and he wept aloud. So in those three moments, he wept. So we've seen that he doesn't intervene in such a way to manipulate the, the, the kind of whole situation so that they bow down to him. We've seen that because they bow down to him right away. But we've seen on three occasions that he's stealing himself and he's weeping over what's going on. So someone, I, I put it to you, someone who is seeking vengeance, they don't cry over it, do they? I don't know if you've ever experienced a moment where you're kind of seeking vengeance. You don't weep at the same time and feel a sense of remorse. No, you don't. It's one of those unpleasant aspects of human nature, isn't it? He was deeply troubled. This was something Joseph, naturally speaking, did not want to do. Something else was driving Joseph. And it was not vengeance. And he wasn't trying to fulfill this prophecy that all his brothers would bow down to him. So, why did Joseph then carefully construct this scene because he did didn't he he did carefully construct the scene shall we have a look in chapter 42 and we're still in this stage one when the brothers came down and they didn't know that it was joseph so something happens when these brothers come down to egypt and joseph speaks coarsely to them and they can't identify that that's their brother something happens and so let's just see what what transpires here well, everything goes according to plan, as you'd expect with Joseph. So Genesis chapter 42, then verse 21. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we should not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child? And ye would not hear. Therefore, behold also his blood is required. Can you remember what happened? They came down and Joseph accused them of being spies and he placed them all into prison. Can you remember that? And there they were. They were in prison in Egypt and they felt that they were about to face imminent judgment. And they speak in the Hebrew tongue amongst themselves, not appreciating that Joseph could understand every single word that they said. And they felt that they were worthy of judgment because of this terrible sin. Isn't that interesting? So in this first point, this first stage that Joseph constructs, there is this open acknowledgement that they've done something wrong. There's a burden that they feel and they express remorse. Now, we've seen that that is an aspect of forgiveness. There is an acknowledgement that one person has done something wrong, the offender. 
and there is this feeling of remorse. So isn't that fascinating? Something is happening with these brothers in this, this stage that, that Joseph has set, that there is something happening. They have confessed privately that they've done something wrong, and they express remorse. Let's have a look at uh, stage two. So stage two is that Joseph now sends these brothers, he takes them out of prison, he sends these brothers on their way, and he tells them they need to bring back their youngest brother, Benjamin. Now Reuben was the eldest, but he holds back Simeon. Reuben was the head of the family. Now this is fascinating because if you're in chapter 42, have a look at verse 22 again, please, because let's just read this again. When they were speaking in the Hebrew tongue and Joseph could understand everything that they were saying, this is what Reuben says. He says to his brothers, his nine brothers here, spake I not unto you, saying, do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear, Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And so here then, Reuben is saying, I told you so. And when we go back to the account, we know that it was Reuben who did not want to kill Joseph. All the other brothers consented to the death of Joseph, with the exception of Reuben, the eldest. Perhaps he felt a, a sense of responsibility on that day. For his father, knowing how much his father loved Joseph. Now Joseph had heard that. He knew that Reuben was not responsible for the selling of him to the Ishmaelites. And so then he takes number two. Simeon. And look at the words on the screen here. Because all the brothers, with the exception of Reuben, they conspired to kill Joseph. And it says there in Genesis 37 verse 20... Come now, therefore, and let us slay him, and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. So can you see here? So what's happening? The eldest in the family that was responsible for selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites is now remaining in prison with Joseph. There is true accountability being made. Can you see that? Reuben's allowed to go on his way, not Simeon, because now he is representative of the brothers who consented to the death of Joseph. So there is, this sin is being now transferred to this family, with the exception of Reuben here. Isn't that fascinating? So there's an identification of the sin. So with those thoughts in mind now, in stage two, the brothers go back, Simeon's left back, in Egypt, and we come to chapter 50, uh, 43, and have a look at verse 8. Chapter 43, and, and verse 8, and, um, and now, so the brothers have gone back, they tell poor Jacob that, that Simeon's there, and, 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 and Jacob's not going to do anything, but they run out of food, because there's a family, famine. And, and Judah's saying, we've got to go back. This great man in, in Egypt has told us we, we've got to go back. Otherwise, we're going to starve. And we've got to take Benjamin. Okay, so that's the context. Chapter 43, verse 8. And Judah said unto Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou, and also our little ones. 
I will be surety for him. I want you to really notice these words of Judah because he's going to turn out to be an amazing man of faith. He's not at this stage, but he will soon be. I will surety for him of my hand, shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. I just want you to notice that phrase. For me, it's a really important phrase there. A few lines down in verse 9. Let me bear the blame forever. I've got in my margin, the revised version, I have sinned against thee forever. So, so here now, Judah is making an oath to Jacob, his father, in saying, I now have the responsibility of taking your other beloved son from Rachel, Benjamin, the other son's gone, and I promise you, father, that he's going to be fine. I'm going to bring him back. And if he doesn't come back... I have sinned against you forever. Can you see what's happening? Judah, as a representative of the family now, is saying, this sin that happened in the past will never happen again. Can you see that? Now, now of course, Jacob doesn't know, does he? He doesn't know what has happened. He's, he's only looked at the bloody garment. He thinks Joseph is dead. He doesn't know what's in the mind of Judah, but Judah now is swearing an oath. This is never going to happen again. And that's another important aspect of forgiveness and repentance. It is this commitment that what we have done, we will never do again. Can you see this? So in this process of repentance, we've had this first stage where they've spoken amongst themselves as brothers and said, this is a terrible thing, we have sinned. There's been this acknowledgement and there's been the bearing of the sin. Stage two, when Judah speaks to his father, what's coming out of the narrative here is, this is never going to happen again. Can, can you see this? this? This framework, it's a beautiful thing when we spot it, this framework of forgiveness and, 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 and repentance, it's now very much in action. And, and these brothers now are on a journey. They are on a journey of salvation. I said that there's more to the salvation of them bowing to, to the king or the prince of Egypt when they had no food and, and, and Joseph delivers them. I believe that there's something far more important than, than that that's going on here. This is about true forgiveness and true reconciliation. So I think that's what's going on here. So in summary then, we've got this. Stage one then we've seen is this confess privately, and I've already mentioned this about forgiveness. There's a private aspect and there's a public aspect. And here, on this repentance, there's this private aspect, which is, I'm really sorry. I am really, really sorry. We need to think about this because we always do things wrong. What stages are we on in the things that we're doing wrong every single day? Well, stage one is seen, I'm, I'm really sorry, I should never have done that. I feel it, it was wrong. Stage two, I'm never going to do that again to the best of my ability, okay? So now we come to the finale, right? Joseph reveals himself. Shall we have a look at that? So turn over a chapter to chapter 44, and, and it all starts off, doesn't it, how, how Joseph constructs this scene. And he's going to test whether they've truly changed. Can, can you remember? He places his favorite cup, the golden cup, the cup of divination into the, into the sack of Benjamin. We, we know this from our Sunday school lessons. 
Benjamin, his beloved brother. And uh, whoever has got this cup is in big, big trouble. Shall we have a look? Chapter 44 and verse 9. So then, the cup goes missing. The brothers leave Egypt, all of them now, with Simeon. And the steward of Joseph chases after them and, and calls them and says these words in verse 9. With whomsoever of, of thy servants it is found, this is this cup, both let him die, and we will also be my Lord's bondmen. Okay? And then if you look down at verse 12, and he searched and began at the eldest and left at the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So, so what we're being told here is that whoever had taken the cup of Joseph would have to become a bondman. They would die in slavery in Egypt. So a pretty extreme consequence of taking this cup of divination. And it was orchestrated in such a way that it was in Benjamin's sack. So this is stage three. It's all building up to the revealing of Joseph. Okay. So with that then, let's just see what happens here. There we've got, as I said in verse 9, if you just look at that and think about that for a moment, the consequence of the cup was to be a bondman in Egypt. Think about that. Just, just please, just bear with me. Just, just think about that for a moment. Have we seen that before? Of course we have. Who became a bondman in Egypt? It was Joseph. It was Joseph, wasn't it? Can you see that? The other brother. The brother of Benjamin. The two beloved sons of Rachel. Jacob's favorite wife. Can you see now that how Joseph was orchestrating events now in this climax, he orchestrates things in such a way that it is an absolute repeat of the scene of the pit. Can you see that? It's an absolute repeat of the scene of the pit where they've got the brother of Benjamin down in the pit. They see the Ishmaelites going over to, to Egypt, and they have this temptation to sell him off so that he can become a servant and die there in slavery. Can you see that? It's very clever what's going on. So think about where we are. Stage one, I've committed a sin. I've sold a brother of mine into Egypt as a bondman. Okay? Stage number two. Not only is it a bad sin, I'm never, ever going to sell one of my brothers into Egypt as a bondman. Stage three, here's the test. Here's the test. So what's going to go on? Well, we've got these delightful words here that were said by Judah. Have a look at this. Then they rent their clothes and they laid it every man his ass and returned to the city. So that's the first thing. They don't, I want you to notice that. We can quickly read over that. They don't allow just Benjamin to go off into Egypt and they say goodbye like they did to Joseph. No. They're in this together. Something's changed. They rent their clothes, they all get on their horses, and they all go down into Egypt. There was no calling for that. He only required Benjamin. Something is different. Something has changed. And so then they go and meet Joseph, this prince of Egypt. And obviously they felt terrible about it. And so then we've got this appeal. 
Verse 16, let's just see what Judah says. And Judah said, what shall we say unto my Lord? Isn't that interesting? My Lord, they're speaking to their little brother. What shall we speak or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. And, and think about those words. They're very deliberate words because they knew that they have never placed the cup of Benjamin in the sack. They are referring back to what they did when they sold another brother in, as a slave into Egypt. Judah knew that this wasn't about the cup, that God had found them out. God had found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, with whom the cup is found. So we're all in this together. Benjamin's done nothing wrong. In fact, we've all sinned and sinned terribly. Now, have a look at what Joseph says. Joseph doesn't want any of it, does he? He says, God forbid that I should do so, which is a fascinating thing. You don't expect the, the prince of Egypt to be referring to the God of Israel. God forbid that I should do so. But the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get you up into peace for your father. Now, I love this. Because what's happened up to now is that they have shown that they're not going to do this again. This sin is not going to be committed again. So here now, Joseph, he kind of cranks up the pressure. It's fine. Do you know what? It's perfectly acceptable if you do this. Because I've put you in an impossible situation. Impossible. I'm not going to accept what you offer. I only want this man. And you've got a way out. You can, you can go back and you can speak to your father and you've got a, an absolute rational explanation of why you've lost another brother. Because the prince of Egypt has demanded. Can you see that? And so what's happening, brothers and sisters, and we have to just pause and reflect. An easy route out is being made possible for these brothers. An easy way out. What, what, what do we do in situations like that, brothers and sisters? In, 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 in experiences and moments and temptations that we find so easy, so appealing, that we just keep on doing it time and time and again. And, 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 and that temptation is made easy for us and we can justify in our mind and we can rationalize it and we can actually feel good about ourselves. This is what's happening here. It's an amazing thing. Amazing thing. And these boys, these men now, are on a massive journey. They are learning every second. What's going to happen? What's going to be the outcome here? And just think about it. You're the son of Leah. You've already got one favored son of Rachel out of the way. And Benjamin. Make no mistake about it. He was Jacob's favorite. Rachel was long dead. Was this an opportunity to rid themselves of the other favored son? All the parables just, just jump in our minds, don't they, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's kill the son. It happens again. But this time, they resist the temptation. And so the reason why we had that reading at the beginning of our first talk, this this amazing speech it begins in I, please look down in your bibles verse 18 to, to verse 34 is one of the greatest speeches in scripture and i don't think i can't remember the last time i heard an exposition on the speech of judah it is actually the longest speech in genesis 
Of all the speeches that you think of in Genesis, of all the great characters of faith, this is the longest uninterrupted speech that any man gives. And Judah absolutely stands out as a, as a wonderful example of Scripture. Just look at this then. So with these words in mind here, just want you, as I've just said this amazing thing about Judah, but he wasn't always amazing, was he? If any man had done a U-turn, it's Judah. Think about where it all started. Just look on the screen, please. He was the one who said, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. He was the one who sold the brother into slavery. It was Judah. Judah was the one who planted the idea into their minds. And they all followed suit. And, and I want you just to look what he says here. For me, these are some of the most amazing words in Scripture. Judah. Judah, for me, stands as high in Scripture as Joseph. And you know that Joseph is arguably the greatest type of the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere in Scripture. And for me, Judah stands just as tall as this man because of the journey he goes on. There is no other man I can think of that does such a U-turn as Judah other than the Apostle Paul. And look what he does here. Verse 33 in these climaxing words of Judah, in his appeal to Joseph, this prince of Egypt. Now therefore, he says, I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. Just look at those words. It's worth underlining. It's pu worth putting an asterisk. It's worth coloring. It's worth putting an exclamation mark. This is amazing. So what does he say is, let me be taken. Do with me as you please. I am a substitute for my brother and all my brethren. And that was Judah. That was Judah. Did you know, if I were to ask you, who was the first person to acknowledge that they had sinned? Do you know? It's obviously a leading question because I've got something in our minds at the moment. But um, would you have said Judah? Would you? Yes? No? Don't know. Indifferent. It is Judah, and it's in the incident of Tamar. And he recognizes that he did wickedly. He is the first person in Scripture to acknowledge his sin. And I refer to Judah as the, the penitent man. He is the first man in Scripture to confess a fault. Isn't that amazing? He's the first man. And isn't that fascinating that there's something about Judah that God says, you know what? Judah is the one who's going to have the royal seed. Not Joseph. Not Joseph. But there is something about Judah that I want to associate my son and the kingship of Israel. Isn't that amazing? There is something in the character of Judah that identifies, and we can clearly see, because 
great, great, great down into the lineage, it was going to be another one, but not as a substitute, as a representative. And he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. This is it, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It's amazing when we see the scriptures like this. Look at these words here. You know these words, these climaxing words in, in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, the peaceable one. Isaiah 9 verse 6, isn't it? The, the prince of peace. This is the idea, isn't it? Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So I want you to, to think about this. And I'm going to say it slowly because it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a concept. But it, it dawned on me in these studies... Joseph's endurance brings about Judah's turnaround. I'm going to say that again because for me it's just a short, compact sentence, but it's wow. Joseph's endurance brings Judah's turnaround. We, we can think of other examples. Think about the life of Job and his three friends and how his endurance brought about reconciliation with his three so-called friends. We, we see this idea before. But I want you to imagine that. Joseph is experiencing many of these downs in his life, I believe, to create a turnaround with his brethren. Now, when you start looking at the life of Joseph from that perspective, it is incredible. He's working, God is working through Joseph for his brothers. Amazing. And so we can see here that it's not dreams, it's not revenge, but it's repentance. It's what, you know, when I started off, what, what's motivating Joseph to, to kind of cleverly construct all these scenes? He wants them to repent. He doesn't want to fulfill his dream. He, he doesn't want to bring judgment and wreak vengeance upon them. He loves his brother so much, he wants to see them repent. And so then, in chapter 45 here, and, and, and we know this, and we know this scene where Joseph finally reveals himself, but perhaps we don't always think about the timing of the moment. Judah has acknowledged his sin. He said he wouldn't happen again. And he's prepared to die for his brother. And as far as Joseph is concerned, the process is over. The journey is complete. It is finished. The plan has worked. God has blessed him. And now he intervenes and tells his brothers who he is. So I want us to think about that. The timing is really important. It wasn't just because they were groveling on the ground and he felt, oh, I'm moved by this. I can help them. And there's a sense of empathy. No, no, no. He is waiting for this acknowledgement. He wants to see, he wants to see and hear, and he wants to, to be demonstrated, this repentance. And so then, in, in Genesis 45, then Joseph could not refrain himself after this scene of Judah, this incredible speech before all them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept, and we've seen this idea, he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. 
And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom I sold you into Egypt. And, and you can see here, verse 3, that they were troubled, right? They, they, they kind of shrank back in terror. There was standing a man before them who they thought was dead. But he was very much alive. And he does something that they least expected. He forgives them. He forgives them. And as you just work down these words, these words here, and you can see there in verse 7, God sent me, to, sent me before to, to preserve your posterity. You know what, what strikes me as we, we, we bring our thoughts to an end now? But what strikes me when I'm reading this account is that not only does he forgive them, you know, we, we can forgive each other, can't we? But we can make it feel very uncomfortable for the offender, can't we? Does he do that? No. This is true forgiveness. Is there any mention that he was thrown into the pit, he was sold to the Ishmaelites, that he was in Potiphar's house, he was in prison? No, no, no. Not a mention. This is true forgiveness. In fact, not only does he forgive them for throwing them down into the pit, or throwing them down into the pit, but all the implications and the consequences of that event, he forgives. And not only does he forgive, you know, he says, this is all according to God's plan. Oh, you know, brothers and sisters, young people, if we could just go through life, when we get knocked down and injured and we, we, we kind of incur a serious blow, we think, well, that's God's plan for us. Do we think like that or do we make it very, very personal? I don't like that, brother. I don't like that, sister. We're a family, aren't we? The ecclesia of God, the household of faith, we're just many members of one body and we've got to get on. We'll treat each other properly. What a lovely example this is. And so, as I said, Judah is the penitent man. So I've labeled Judah this penitent man. I want now to label someone else. I want to label Joseph the forgiving man. And I believe that as God, and, and this is quite a thing, as God was working with these brothers to bring about this public repentance. I believe God was working with Joseph to bring him to this moment so that he could publicly forgive. Up to now, he had held it with God and then he'd let it go. And I believe this is a, a massive crescendo moment for Joseph where he really lets go. And we're going to see in a moment, in our second half, the reason there's something said by Judah that the, the last jigsaw puzzle is being placed and suddenly everything is clear and he publicly forgives, unconditionally. Well, that's amazing, brothers and sisters. And so then, in conclusion, just a few little thoughts. Yes, God worked with Joseph so he could save his brothers. But above that, I believe God was working with Joseph and his brothers so that they could experience repentance and forgiveness. And all of them could have this, this moment of reconciliation, of public forgiveness and of public reconciliation. And so, brothers and sisters and young people, what it tells me is that this is really important. If you've got one of the most important stories in Scripture and the principle of and the doctrine of forgiveness and repentance is there as the core. It tells me, and of course Jesus picks it up, it tells me it's really, really important. Really important. 
And, and how often do we think about the life of Joseph and his brothers from the perspective of repentance and forgiveness? We love all the detail and the brothers and the emotion and the commotion and all that, and the father coming down and weeping. We love all that, and I do too. But there's a really serious message, and so I'm going to leave this to you with you. How good are you at forgiving? How good am I? Could we honestly say, as we sat there in our chairs, probably uncomfortably, I'm rubbish, and I'm not getting any better. Well, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Forgiveness is really, really important. And, and how good are we at repenting, turning our lives around? That's what the Lord God wants of us. He wants a complete U-turn. We need to be going in the opposite direction, not towards the world, but towards the kingdom together. So I called this first address, Revealed. And you might have thought, ah, oh, I know all about this. This is about Joseph being revealed. And it's not about this, really. For me, it's the sin being revealed. Can you see what I'm saying? In that moment in Genesis 45, the sin was out. And there was a repentance and there was a forgiveness. And for me, this is what it's all about. This is the revealing. It's not the revealing of the identity of Joseph. It's the revelation of the problem. And it got resolved in that scene. And I'm just going to leave these words just over the break, brothers and sisters, and you, you know these words here. And as we think about these words, let us try to the best of our ability to, to be repentant to our God and in the process forgive each other. Let, let's give each other a bit of slack, please. Let's forgive each other. We're only human. And this is a fundamental thing. I can't stress this enough. These words of Jesus, you know them well. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why didn't Joseph tell Jacob. They were parted for 22 years. Surely there were many, many moments during that period when Joseph could have told his father that he was alive. But, well, of course, things were a bit difficult for Joseph at the beginning, weren't they? He was in Potiphar's house, and then he was in prison. It was impossible at that time to tell his father that he was alive, but things changed dramatically, didn't they? He became the second ruler in all of Egypt. Surely there was an opportunity to say to his father that he was alive, to send a messenger to the land of Canaan. And of course, when the brothers came down and they spoke to Joseph for the first time, that was an ample opportunity, wasn't it, for, for Joseph to reveal himself and say, hurry on, go and tell your father that I'm alive. Bring him down into Egypt. I'm sure we've pondered that question from time to time, but I think it's a, a really important question. I think we've got to, 
We've got to pose it, we've got to challenge ourselves, and I think we've got to try and resolve it. Why was it that Joseph never told his father for 22 long years? And we know that they loved each other because when, when, when they finally meet, they are hugging and they're embracing and they're weeping over each other. We, we know there was great love between these two men, so why? So let's open up our Bibles then, and, and perhaps there is a reason... There's a reason for everything, isn't there? And I think maybe in chapter 37 is the reason why Joseph never told his father. Let's see if we can decipher this little uh, conundrum. So Genesis chapter 37 then. And remember how it all happened. What was the origin of this? What was the genesis? Well... Jacob had sent Joseph on his way to help his brothers. What had happened just before then? Well, we know what happened before then. Joseph had revealed his vision to his brothers, and it angered his brothers, and it frustrated his father. And it was right after the, 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 the disclosing of this vision, which frustrated the entire family, that everyone would, would bow down to this young son that Jacob sends him on his way. So have a look at this. Genesis, chapter 40, uh, Genesis 37 and verse 9. And these words. And, and Joseph dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, so his brothers, they weren't too enamored with these words, Behold, I have dreamed. You can imagine the enthusiasm of Joseph and you can imagine the blank face of, of his brothers. Behold, I have dreamed a dream more and behold the sun and the moon and the, the eleven stars even made abeyance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father noticed Jacob, rebuked him, and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Now, now bear in mind that Jacob was a patriarch. The, the promises of Abraham flow through Jacob. His name had been changed to Israel by this time. What is this dream that thou hast dreamed, young son? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? And his brothers envied him. So this was the catalyst. His brothers envied him, but his father observed, a bit like Mary, who, who kept these sayings in her heart. Uh, Jacob never forgot what he heard that day from Joseph. So notice then, having established that, notice what goes on now. What does Jacob do? Verse 12, And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel, or Jacob, said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to them, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, go, Joseph, I pray thee. See whither it be well with thy brethren, and well with thy flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, now, Joseph had had 22 long years to reflect on this day. He knew that his brothers envied him. He knew that Jacob was well aware of sibling rivalry. He knew all about his father and the problems that he had with his brother Esau. He knew that 20 years had transpired until Esau was reconciled to Jacob. And can you remember the moment that, that Jacob goes out to meet Esau? And it says there that, that, that Jacob was in great fear and distress. 
And he goes on to say that he felt that Esau was about to kill him. Jacob, his father, had experienced this. He knew what revenge was all about. He knew all about sibling rivalry. So you're Joseph. You know your father has experienced this. What hatred amongst brothers can do. And he knows that his father had seen, observed quietly the, 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 the kind of the frustration and the contempt and the envy amongst his own brothers. And Jacob had sent out Joseph alone, unchaperoned. What would you conclude, brothers and sisters and young people? It, it's obvious, isn't it? My father has put my life in jeopardy. My father has put my life in peril. My father is aware what's in this blood, what's in these veins, and he doesn't love me. He's happy for my brothers to do away with me. You could imagine all these thoughts were, 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 were around and bashing around his head as he was there in jail and in Potiphar's house and, and, and the prince of Egypt. You can well imagine it. And this is what happened. But the tragedy of all of this, he had no idea what his brothers had done. He, he didn't know that they had taken his coat, his cloak, and covered it with animal's blood, and shown their father. And can you remember what it says about Jacob? It's a lovely expression. He refused to be comforted. That's how much Jacob loved Joseph. But at this stage, at this time, Joseph was miles and miles away. He had no idea that his father refused to be comforted. So we're beginning to see, really, this emergence of this tragedy, a misunderstanding, I would suggest, that's going on. And we all have misunderstandings from time to time, don't we, in families and in ecclesial life. This is a, a big exhortation for ourselves. But I believe this is where Joseph's mind was. And I believe there's other evidence um, on this. Have a look at chapter 41. So we all remember our first child, right? And uh, the importance of that first name and uh, the deliberations over that name and the significance. And maybe when we get to number three or number four, we don't care about it so much. I don't know. But I do know after that first child, there is something very deliberate in that name. And we know that all names in Scripture are incredibly significant. And so then, Joseph, this great example of the Lord Jesus Christ, no doubt in the, the naming of his first son, there's going to be great import placed upon that name. Look at this. Genesis 41, verse 50. So he has a son, and this son is Manasseh. So verse 50 then, chapter 41, And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of on bear unto him and joseph called the name of the firstborn manasseh i want you to notice that for god said he so the meaning of this name for god said he hath made me forget all my toil and my father's house and that's significant isn't it and the the um, the words are on the screen here so in the the naming of this child this significance this this great man of faith joseph is thinking about his brothers his father's house. And he wants to forget. That's very natural, isn't it? 
He'd had a woeful time. Only 17 years he was in Canaan. Only 17 years. That that experience literally lasted a lifetime in his memory. He wanted to forget. But I want you to notice that little phrase there, or my father's house. Is that a suggestion? That in the naming of his son, he felt that his father had deliberately put his life at risk. Or my father's house that he'd been placed in danger. And is this the reason why that he never sent a message to Jacob? Because in Joseph's mind, he thought that his father Jacob, who had a pretty bad short temper, didn't he, at the best of times, that he wanted him removed. And so to remind him of what his father had done to him and his brothers, can you see that? It was not only his brothers that conspired to throw him down in the pit. He's now assigning responsibility to his father through a misunderstanding. Jacob wasn't in this with his, with his sons, of course not. But, but Jacob, um, Joseph, wasn't aware of that time. And so perhaps then Joseph felt that there was real hatred there, that there was an annoyance so with those thoughts in mind, have a look at this great speech of Judah in chapter 44. We're going to come back to that again now. Because I think now what happens is that in Judah's speech, some new light breaks forth over the situation between Joseph and his father. Let, let me try and explain that in a moment. So if you go down to verse 27... The context of this, very quickly, the context of this is that here now, Judah is intervening, he's like a mediator here, he's pleading for Benjamin, he says, look, Benjamin is a really important son, we've already lost a brother, the brother of Benjamin, and that can't happen again, so take me instead, Benjamin has to go back, take me instead, so that's the context, have a look at this, so I said, didn't I, in my first talk, that there had to be this public confession before Joseph is going to intervene. Well, I think something else is going on here. Have a look at verse 27. And thy servant, my father, says Judah in this great speech, said unto us, ye know what my might bear me two sons. So that's what he's saying. There's two sons, two really... You can imagine, we're not that important. That's what Judah's saying. There's two really important fa uh, uh, sons in, in our family. One's gone, and there's Benjamin, and, and they're super important. They've got, to, they've got to be looked after. And the one went out from me and, I, and said, Surety, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. And if ye take this also from me, and, and mischief before him, ye shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it shall come to pass, and he seeth that his lad is not with us, that he will die. And thy servant shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servants, our fathers, with sorrow to the grave. Now, I know that was a lot of information. What's the revelation? Have a look. Please look at your verses. What's the revelation there? If you're Joseph, and you are thinking, my father planned all this, What's the revelation? Well, the revelation there is verse 28. Surely he's torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. Can you see that? They are saying that his father thought that the other brother 
had been torn in pieces. Can you see that? That's an incredible revelation. Suddenly, Joseph knows that Jacob, his father, is not in the plot and thinks that he died, he was killed by an animal. This is an amazing moment. This is the final piece of the jigsaw. He could just about accept his brothers, but why did his father do that to him? He couldn't understand it. This is why I believe he didn't send a message down or up into Israel. But now he knows his beloved dad, his father, has for 22 years believed that he'd been ripped to shreds by a wild animal. That his brothers had taken his, his multicolored coat, his priesthood garment. Can you see that? It's an amazing. I don't know how many times we've read that and we've overlooked that and not really noticed it. It's amazing. It's the final jigsaw. Now look at this. What is the first thing? What is the first thing that Joseph says in verse 3 when he reveals himself? Look at verse 3. Doth my father yet live? I, I get choked with that. Can you see that? He's like. I can't believe it. For 22 young, long years, I thought my father was in this. First question. Of all the things he could have asked his brothers, how's dad? Oh, you can feel that. How's my father? Is he still alive? He realizes that his father was still grieving, that he couldn't be comforted. Can you see, I believe that what's happening here is a tragic misunderstanding. A tragic misunderstanding between a father and son. And it lasts for over 20 years. It happens, doesn't it? It happens. We all have misunderstandings. And what happens with misunderstandings? Well, we don't really know all the facts, but we think we know all the facts, don't we? And we form an opinion, and, and maybe there's a bit of prejudice in all of this, and we don't change our minds, and, and that's the misunderstanding, isn't it? And it happens to all of us in ecclesial life, in family life. It happens all the time. A misunderstanding, and we don't really give ourselves the time to gather all the facts, and we form an opinion, and we are resolved in that opinion, and, and we are absolute... Um, unmoving aren't we in, 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 in our views this misunderstanding brought about tragic consequences and brothers and sisters you know it shouldn't happen in the household of faith there shouldn't be misunderstandings and, and, and if we gave each other time and love and we really esteemed each other greater than ourselves it wouldn't happen would it it wouldn't happen but it does and it shouldn't be. And this lasted for 20 years. And so I think there's a tragedy that, that happens here. Joseph just misunderstood. He had so many opportunities to tell his father, but he resisted because he just misunderstood. It's not a sin on Joseph's behalf. It's great sadness, isn't it? So I want you to imagine then a father who loves his son his beloved son, and a son that absolutely loves his father. And as far as Jacob is concerned, Joseph was dead. And as far as Joseph was concerned, his father was dead. Really? Dead from his life. And so these two men, like two resurrected men, they come together in Goshen, in the most fertile area 
in the Nile. You, you could imagine this scene, this, this moving scene. After 22 years of separation, it would have been, oh, we would have been weeping. I, I get moved just thinking about it. These two men. And, and let's just look at this. Chapter 46. And, and it's so emotional. And, and you can imagine Joseph. And Joseph's the prince of Egypt, but he knows his father. All right, his father's not a prince of Egypt, but he's a patriarch. And he puts his arms around his father. And he weeps over his father. And you can imagine Jacob. He's absolutely frozen. He just, he's trying to compute what's going on. His son was dead for 22 years. And now the penny drops, and he understands what his sons have done to him. Chapter 46 then, and verse 30, and, and Israel said unto Joseph, you can see at the end of verse 29, and he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a, a good while. Oh, would you have loved to have seen that? that? That's one of the moments I want in the kingdom, just to talk to Jacob and Joseph about this scene. And Israel said unto Joseph, now let me die. Can you imagine that? that? The happiness that that man had felt. Remember what he says to Pharaoh. I, I've suffered all my life, he says to Pharaoh, when, when Joseph introduces him to Pharaoh. Can you imagine the, the feeling of happiness bursting in his heart at this moment? He never thought he'd ever feel that, that sense of joy ever again, being stripped of his favorite son. Now let me die as soon as he sees Joseph, he could die. His, his life was complete. I've seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. And Joseph said unto his brethren, and unto his father's house, I will go up and show Pharaoh, and say unto him, My brethren and my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, and come unto me. So it's a lovely moment, and we'll just leave that there, just for a brief while, that Jacob is ready to die now. But he's going to go on another 20 years, 17 years. And then he's going to later die in Goshen. So he's going to have a good period of time with Joseph and his two sons, all united as a family. Jacob's going to be blessed at the end of his life. So I want to now go to chapter 48. With that scene in your mind, I want to go forward now 17 years, and we're now at the end of Jacob's life. He's been blessed in Goshen. And what he does, and you can imagine this, it was a, a very dramatic scene. He calls Joseph to see him. He, he knows he's about to die, and he wants Joseph to bring his two sons. I'm sure we, we, we know this well. And Israel, verse 8 of chapter 48, beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? So do, just imagine that. He's lived in, in, in Goshen for 17 years. He's a wise old man. He is Jacob. He loved Joseph, every hair upon his head. And he would have loved these two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. And by this time, these boys were not young boys. They were men. They were in their 20s. So that whatever picture you've got in your head, they, they are grown men. And, and he can't quite recognize them. And you can see there, can't you, um, in verse 8, who are these? And, and look in verse 10, it says there, now the eyes of Israel were dim for age. So the scene is set. He calls upon Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh are going to come. 
and what's going to play out? He's going to bless these two sons. But it tells us there, in verse 10, that he was going blind. C can you imagine what Jacob is thinking? This is another play out, isn't it? Remember Isaac, who was going blind and also blesses two brothers? And here now Jacob, as an old patriarch, his eyes are now dim. And now he enters into the same situation. So many times he enters into the same situation as others. He enters into the situation of Isaac to bless these two brothers. And he is aware of what happened. And the confusion that took place with the blessing of Jacob and Esau. And, 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 and what took place, the, the consequences of that where Esau chased Jacob for 20 years. C can you imagine that? All these things would have been racing in Jacob's mind, and Joseph would have been acutely aware of what had happened. And now these two other sons were coming together, and there was a, a pecking order. It was Manasseh and Ephraim. There was a, a very deliberate pecking order with these two boys. I would suggest the moment was very tense. Your dad's about to die. What's he going to do? Is he in his right mind? What is he going to do? Because whatever plays out today, I will have to shoulder the consequences. You can imagine Joseph, this prince of Egypt. Who are these? Well, as we know, he doesn't do what Joseph hoped for or expected. Shall we just read a few verses here? Chapter 48 then, still there. Verse 11. And Jacob said unto Joseph... I had not thought to see thy face, and lo, God hath showed me also thy seed. So he'd been there for 17 years. And Joseph brought them, these two lads, two men, grown men in their 20s, brought them out from between his knees, which is an unusual phrase, isn't it, given that they were adults. And he bowed himself with the face of the earth. So the idea is that they were hidden behind him. Blind Jacob couldn't quite see, couldn't quite discern these two lads. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand. So, so think about that. He wants Manasseh to receive the right hand of his father, and the right hand was always the right hand of blessing. So in Joseph's minds, there's a clear pecking order. He's well aware of what happened with Esau and Jacob, and it is not to happen again. So he took Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near unto him. So you can just imagine the moment. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Okay? So I just want you to notice, you might have a different translation before you, but that word there, wittingly, that's a, an unusual word, isn't it, in the authorized version, wittingly. It literally means, if you've got a, a modern translation, like the revised version, it literally means to cross the hands. Right, so, so Jacob, this wily old man, he knew what he was doing, and he crosses his hands, and he takes Joseph by total surprise. And so, so there's Joseph, and he deliberately lines up his, 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 his lads, Jacob, you can imagine, Jacob takes one look at Joseph and he crosses his hands, right? And, and, and before he could stop it happening, 
the blessing had taken place. So I ask you, think about that for a moment. You could amuse yourself when you think of your own parents. I can imagine my father doing that with me and Luke. Um, when, you, when you think of family life and all, all the things, the funny things that go on in family life, was Jacob being foolish? Was he doing something that was going to guarantee a family feud for another generation? That family was full of feuds. And this wasn't going to help, was it? And Joseph finds himself in Egypt because of family feuds. Was this going to continue another generation? Or was it that Jacob's eyes were so dim, he got it wrong? What do you think? Do you think it was a foolish moment? Or you might not have a point of view. Well, I'm sure you do. Because it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, and just look at the screen here because it's, it's a really important one. By faith, when he was dying, he blessed both the sons of Joseph. You know, sometimes we can, the amount of times we've heard talks on Samson and then someone goes, oh wow, he's, he's in Hebrews 11, right? We, we, we should really remember the characters in Hebrews 11. They are guaranteed the kingdom of God. And Hebrews 11 is a record of why they are there. And this is what is attributed to Jacob. At the end of his life, of all the things that Jacob has done, there is something in this moment that God says, you got it right. And this was a moment of great faith. It was a great trumping moment. I believe, I really, really believe, if you think about the life of Jacob and Joseph, you kind of have Joseph up here and you kind of have Jacob oscillating, don't you? I believe he comes back so strong. I think in this final chapter, this is his greatest chapter in many ways, as well as the wrestling of the angel. And I believe, I'm going to show you this, I believe he comes back with a, a lesson and a message for Joseph. Joseph, this incredible man where, where nothing is recorded of sin with Joseph. Of course he was a sinner, but nothing is recorded in Scripture. There's this wonderful example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jacob, his father, at the end of his years, he has a lesson for Joseph. He roars back, does Jacob. Roars, I believe in this moment. So Hebrews 11 is telling us that it's an act of faith. He knew those boys. You can tell. If you love your son, and those of you who are grandparents, you know how much you love your grandchildren. I know that. I can see grandparents all smiling out there in the audience. I, I know how much. I know my own parents. Jacob knew these boys. But a lesson was being made when he crossed wittingly his hands. And suddenly, once again, the elder is going to serve the younger. Can you believe it? In this one family, we're going to repeat this, this merry-go-round, another generation? Yes, for a reason. What did Jacob know? He knew the meanings of their names. And I've already told you that there was great significance in these names. And Jacob knew all about names. If there was anything that Jacob knew in the translation of his name, from Jacob to Israel, he knew everything about the meaning of names. You could imagine this man was obsessed with the meaning of names because his life was changed by a meaning of a name. 
And I want you just to reflect now on the meanings of these names. And we've looked at them, but Manasseh, so programmed in these names, is the story of Joseph, but not just the story of Joseph, the story of Joseph in slavery. I'll repeat that. Programmed in these names is not just the story of Joseph, this, this story of reconciliation, of forgiveness. No, no, no. Programmed in these names, these two names, is the story of slavery in Egypt. He had these two sons in Egypt, and you'll see the meanings of these names, and it's all about his experience in Egypt. So Manasseh means, for God hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. We looked at that in the first half. Just just think about that for a moment. It's very self-explanatory. God hath made me forget all my toil in my father's house. And we, we've seen how there was a misunderstanding and, and, and he knew that his, his brothers had put him down in the pit and, and sold him into slavery. He was the 11th son of a, a nomadic family. He was a, a family of shepherds. And now he finds himself the prince of Egypt in the most civilized city and the most civilized empire in all the world. Can you imagine what that does for a young man? forget everything everything about my previous identity just look at me now I'm not questioning God in all of this or uh, uh, Joseph's faith in God he knew that God was with him all the time but you can imagine with all the trappings of success in his life he would have every natural reason to forget his father's But soon after, he has another son, Ephraim. And I believe by the time he has his second son, Joseph, who was wearing the robe of Pharaoh, the signet ring of Pharaoh, the chain of Pharaoh, he had the chariot of Pharaoh. You can't even imagine the greatness of Joseph. Can't even imagine it. But by the second son, I believe there was a change of heart. And so he calls his son Ephraim. Although he was surrounded by the trappings of worldly success, the name means God hath caused me. I want you to notice this. This is really, really telling. God hath caused me to be fruitful. Yes, look at me. He has caused me to be fruitful in the land, we wouldn't expect that, of my affliction. Can you, can, look, at, look at those two names. The first name is, I want to forget everything associated with my father's house in the land of Canaan. What is he saying with his first home, the first name? This is home. Look at my life. And, and you can imagine the relief. There he is, and he has a beautiful wife, and they have their first son, and, and there he is. He's, he's holding court with Pharaoh. You can imagine him feeling like that. This is home, and I forget the land of Canaan, my father's house. And in his father's house were the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not saying that he lost his faith, but I believe he lost his identity with the land of Israel. By the time he takes his second son, it's changed. He recognizes that he's fruitful, but suddenly... He has a different perspective of where he is. No longer is it his home, but it's the land of my affliction. Can you see that? It's incredible, isn't it? There's a change that's going on in Joseph. 
And so, coming back to why I think Jacob switched his hands, he understood that story, that narrative. And he's telling Joseph, your people, your land is where home is. It's not here, son. It's not here. I'm appreciative of what you've done for me. In the land of Goshen, and how you've saved my family. You can imagine this, can't you, with Jacob? But son, this is not home. This is not home at all. So, so just go on here, because now, let's look at the scene from Joseph's perspective, because he's frustrated. He's not happy with this. We, we can see the logic with Jacob, but Joseph is not happy one moment. So chapter 48 then, and verse 17. And so when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, blessing the younger, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head. Until Manasseh, so, so now Joseph intervenes. He's not happy at all. You can imagine some, some anger rising with his father. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the first one. He knows all about the history of his family. Put thy right hand upon his head. It's almost like a, a son talking to a father, like a, like, a, like a father talks to a child, isn't it? That the, the roles are reversed. So Joseph thinks. But Jacob, he's not having any of it. Verse 19, his father refused and said, I know it, my son. He knows what's going on. I know it. He also shall become a people, and he shall also be great. Be truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations and so then we see here that Jacob was aware he knew what he was doing now now think about Joseph we've said here that Joseph is a, a little concerned that the, the the dysfunctionality of his family is going to repeat another generation and everyone's going to face the consequences of that you imagine Ephraim and Manasseh listening to this message so not only are their roles reversed but suddenly in all of this they are hearing that home is somewhere else. Now, you've grown up in Egypt. You're in your early 20s. Your father is number two. He is the prime minister of Egypt. Now, you imagine that as a young Christadelphian child. You go to Sunday school, but you're living in that type of palace. And everyone recognizes you as the hero of Egypt. You, you've saved Egypt from famine. Can, can you imagine the praise, the adulation, the attention that that family drew from the whole of Egypt? You imagine growing up in that as those two boys. And you looked at your father and you saw the status that your father had. And perhaps for Ephraim and Manasseh, I think I'm going to take on that role one day. Those of you who have got your own companies and your sons might say, or your daughters, I think I'll take on that business one day and I'll do a better job than you, Dad. Or mum. It would have been only natural for Ephraim and Manasseh to think that. And suddenly now, this is a very, very different message. Home is not this. You can, you can take away the palace and the throne and the status and the, the wealth and the, the life that you have. And you go back as a shepherd. This is a big message. And so, brothers and sisters, I believe here, if you think now, when is this taking place? When does slavery begin for Israel in Egypt? Well, it's after this, isn't it? 
we read in those opening verses in Exodus when there was a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and their big problems come to the land of Israel or the people of God, the children of Israel. And they're going to be in, in, in captivity for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. They're not going back. Joseph's not going back alive. Ephraim and Manasseh are not going to experience the land of Canaan. Can you see where I'm going with this? This was a message for the children of Israel. Jacob was aware of the, the prophecy of Genesis 15. You can look at it in your own time. You, you know about it where, where God went between, as a flaming fire between the pieces, and, and Abraham knew that they would be there for 400 years before a deliverer brought them out of the land of Egypt. Jacob knew his scripture. He wasn't talking directly to Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh. He was talking to all of the children of Israel, brothers and sisters. He was talking to you and me too. And what Jacob was saying, and this is why I think it's really the climax of Jacob's life, what he's simply saying is this. Boys, you have a choice. You can allow Manasseh be preeminent in your life and you can be in a place of slavery true slavery or you can allow Ephraim to reign over you and, and, and what Jacob is saying there's going to be a tussle there is going to be a conflict there is going to be an enmity between these two things not between these two natural brothers but between those names and what they stood for can you see what I'm saying it was an incredible message from Jacob. Incredible message when you, when you see it from that perspective. And he's saying for all generations, you have a choice. You can be identified with Ephraim or Manasseh. You, you, could, you can make this place a place of slavery your home, or you can look to another place, a place of the promises, the place of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you have a choice, and I have a choice. And so then, have a look at this. Have a look at chapter 50. Chapter 50 here. We thought about the, the faith of Jacob in Hebrews chapter 11. So how does the apostle describe Joseph and his moment of faith? Well, you see there in verse 22 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Isn't that fascinating? So again, similarly, like Jacob, right at the end of his life, right at the end of his life with Joseph. And so Joseph now does something that, that kind of climaxes his entire life in the truth with what he's going to do and the decision that he's going to make here concerning his death and burial. Now, you're, you're almost a pharaoh in Egypt and, and you could be preserved in a pyramid and, and, and Joseph here, he looks at the land with the eyes of faith now, and, and he, he gathers his brothers, and he makes sure that they, they are bound by an oath that his bones would be carried to the land of Canaan. Can you see that? Genesis chapter 50, this is the, the final section we're going to look at here. Uh, Genesis chapter 50. And verse 24, And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of the land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you 
and she shall carry my bones from hence. That's the Hebrews 11 reference, isn't it? So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt, and as we know, he was taken. As they, as they, as they fled the land of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12 with the Pascal lamb, they picked up the coffin, and on it went, on the way to the land of promise. Can you see why I've gone there and why I'm thinking about this? Jacob had said in the switching of his hands, Joseph, look around you. This is not your home. And Hebrews 11 says, bang, moment of faith. And now Joseph, at the end of his life, he looks all around him and he says, this isn't home. I could be preserved for all posterity, but you know, I'm going home. I'm going to be buried with my family in the land of Israel. Bang! A moment of faith. Can you see that? Isn't that, isn't that really, really lovely? And so this is where his heart was. And so, as I said in my first talk, the revelation, really, in our first talk, was the revelation of the sin. It wasn't just the, the revelation of Joseph, it was the revelation of the sin, and there was that reconciliation. And here there's another revelation. I believe a revelation takes place here in this chapter, a revelation where Joseph's heart is. We don't know until now. He believes in his God, he loves his Father. But we haven't seen that connection between him and the land of Israel. And now we see it. The revelation, the full disclosure is made. He loves the land. He loves the people. He wants to return home. And so, brothers and sisters, young people, as we think about the life of Joseph and, and, and Jacob here, as I started off, we, we're all facing challenges, aren't we? And, and we could be thinking, what's the point? And, and we're not going to know this side of the kingdom, but one day we will have our life's full story, and we will have a, a complete perspective. But I believe the life of Joseph is telling me, you, you might have different views, but for me, it's telling me that, Stephen, in life, you've got to learn repentance and forgiveness. That's the journey. That's the journey we're on. They are that vital. You've got to learn repentance and forgiveness. And what it tells me with the life of Joseph when you've experienced all these things and you've forgiven and you've forgiven and you're at the point of full repentance and all the tears are being shed it's then that we can go home and that's the lesson brothers and sisters it's as simple as that that's when we're going home to the land on God's coming kingdom when our journey is over. And so till then, as with the names of Manasseh and Ephraim, till then, till that day, we have to accept, we will have to toil. But there will come a time, and God has promised that in that great day, we will be truly fruitful. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.